Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. George Washington was commander-in-chief long before he was America's first president. His military service set a precedent. Twelve presidents were U.S. Army generals. Lawyer is the only calling to appear more consistently on the first CV. Reverence for the military is woven into the fabric of the Republic. But soldier-statesmen have fallen out of fashion. Dwight Eisenhower, the hero of World War II, is the only general to have held the presidency since 1900. The shadow of Vietnam still falls heavy on American politics, but no one who served there will ever be president now. With 136 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prido, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what's the military's place in politics? America is in the midst of its worst civil military crisis for a generation. President Trump's call to use military force to quell protests caused alarm up and down the chain of command. Is consensus on the role of the US military in political life unraveling? In this episode, we'll hear about rising disquiet in the ranks, cast an eye back to the row between a president and a top general that nearly started World War III, and hear how one young Republican veteran in the current Congress navigates the delicate civil-military balance. With me, as ever, to talk about all of this is Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the Washington correspondent. Charlotte, how are you doing? How's the past week gone your end? My week has gone pretty well so far. I'm gearing up for The Economist's live Zoom reading of Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, in which I've been cast as Titania. And um, I see that as a definite upgrade from in seventh grade being asked to play death. So things are looking up. John Fussman, how about you? Uh, the week has been lovely. I managed to escape quarantine in Connecticut for a week, and we've been down with family in rural Virginia. So it's been very nice. I'm pleased to hear it. Well, Charlotte, it's almost impossible to read a Shakespeare play nowadays without seeing some echo of Donald Trump. And perhaps even we'll find a John Bolton echo when we're reading through Midsummer Night's Dream tomorrow night. <laughs> we'll talk about the impact of revelations from Donald Trump's former national security advisor in a moment, which is really part of a growing rift between the president and the national security establishment in Washington. It's a couple of weeks now since President Trump's infamous outing to the church across the street from the White House, where he appeared to co-opt the military into a photo op in the midst of nationwide protests. We didn't talk about it that much at the time because there was so much else going on and we were focused on George Floyd. Nevertheless, I think it's possible that when people look back at Donald Trump's first term, that will be one of the moments that stands out. 
Since then, a number of senior military folk, including some who served in the Trump administration, have expressed their dismay at the incident. I wanted to talk to Shashank Joshi, The Economist's defense editor, about this. He's been warning about a crisis in civil-military relations that predates the recent protests. Over the past 30 years, what we have seen across multiple presidencies is retired senior military figures pulled into presidential electoral politics in a really worrying way. This began in the late 1980s, uh, it continued through to the 1990s, and in some ways the apex was the 2016 election when we had Michael Flynn, Donald Trump's first national security advisor, famously chanting, lock her up, debasing his, his professional standards. But also on the other side, people like General John Allen, who was a deputy commander of the campaign against ISIL, also supporting Hillary Clinton. And there was a sort of arms race of endorsements underway. What I think is different about the Trump administration is that he has co-opted serving military officers in a much more crude uh, and no-holds-barred way. Uh, and I think this is really stark in the speeches he's given in Iraq, handing out caps with Make America Great Again on them, which is, I think, stepping beyond just that effort to co-opt retired officers into something much more serious and much more dangerous. Okay, Shashank, that doesn't sound good at all. Tell me a bit about what's going on below the level of generals and senior officers. We've seen several of them speak out, oppose the way President Trump tried to co-op the military for his political ends. What's going on among the grunts? I think there's widespread concern. Uh, can I just, John, can I read you a note that I was sent by a, a US colonel who I spoke to a couple of weeks ago, which I think reflects what the feeling is. He said to me, people are concerned. Army leaders are really concerned. The institution can only take so much stress. Civil military norms can only take so much pressure. And that these sorts of conversations are happening everywhere across the army right now. And you might think, well, that's just a colonel. That's just, you know, a sort of senior leader who's reflecting elite concerns. And to some extent, that's true. Enlisted men and women probably don't dwell on the politics of the army as much. But I think it's really notable that the racial dimension of all of this is, is resonating and does have an impact. I think it's notable, for example, that during this crisis, we saw Kalath Wright, who is the most senior enlisted member of the US Air Force. And in that sense, you could say a sort of representative of the enlisted airmen and airwomen in the force, said his greatest fear is that I will wake up to a report that one of our black airmen has died at the hands of a white police officer. So if this was just some sort of, you know, high-minded constitutional political debate, that's one thing. But I think that this is a racial debate in a force with a history of racial divisions and a force that reflects America today in its diversity really means that this, these issues, these concerns probably do also ripple down the ranks. Charlotte, let's begin by defining what we mean when we talk about a crisis in civil military relations in the US. I mean, I used to cover Brazil and other bits of Latin America for The Economist. And there, when you talk about a crisis in civil military relations, you're normally talking about the generals trying to take over in politics and get rid of or usurp democratically elected governments. In America, what we're seeing is something completely different. In fact, in a sense, almost the reverse, right? The president seems to be trying to drag the military into elective politics, and they are resisting, but resisting rather uncomfortably given that he's the commander-in-chief. So please, if you can, just lay out what we think the problem is here. 
I think the problem is that the military sees itself and should be an apolitical force. And Trump likes to politicize it. That is both by bringing various generals into his administration, and then also by using the military in unconventional ways. So he's not aggressive in the way that he sees the military's role abroad. He is much more Jacksonian, as we have discussed before, where he likes to avoid the idea of foreign intervention and that America will be ready to retaliate when provoked, but isn't going to go out of its way to be the world's policeman. But then at home, he seems quite comfortable in a more aggressive and active style of military force. So there was, of course, this most recent incident in Lafayette Square. And then also in 2018, in the run-up to the midterms, he called active duty military troops to the Mexican border to deal with migrants. And so then you see the military leaders in the extraordinary position of having to affirm their impartiality and having to affirm the fact that they are apolitical. And then that affirmation becomes a political act. It's so hard to stay completely apolitical in the Trump era. So you have Mark Milley, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff after the Lafayette Square incident, saying that my presence in that moment and in that environment created a perception of the military involved in domestic politics. And he has said, we must hold dear the principle of an apolitical military that is so deeply rooted in the essence of our republic. And so it's pretty remarkable that you have people not just who have left the administration, but are currently serving in it who feel the need to say that they are apolitical. But then that statement in itself can be used for partisan purposes. John, if you think right back to the beginning of Donald Trump's presidency, when his fondness for generals became very clear, you know, he had Kelly, McMaster, Mattis in his White House, he would have had Michael Flynn had the FBI not intervened there. And having so many generals at the top table of politics led some people to talk about a sort of huntification, Latin American style politics of the military getting involved in America. That, in retrospect, seems way off to me. There were also a whole load of people who said, actually, the presence of these generals is really reassuring. You know, Given so many well-qualified and experienced people ruled themselves out of serving in a Donald Trump administration, the presence of these people is reassuring and they might be able to rein him in a bit. That That sort of hasn't worked out either. So how do you think about how President Trump has sort of made use of the military, both as a political prop and in terms of personnel staffing in the White House? Generals McMaster, Kelly, and Mattis are all professionals who took an oath to defend the United States. They didn't take an oath to Donald Trump personally, and Trump as a president is really fixated on personal loyalty. What strikes me about his use of the military is the extent to which he uses it to sort of further his own idea of the military, which is not always in line with what the military actually is and does. And that has got him in trouble. Even before this recent incident in Lafayette Park, you recall, last year he pardoned Eddie Gallagher, who's a Navy SEAL who was accused of, of posing with a corpse of a, of, a, of a dead Iraqi. And he did that after the Navy had convicted him and wanted his trident pin removed. Donald Trump overruled the generals. You saw it also in the Fuhrer over changing the names of American military bases named after Confederate generals. Donald Trump said he wouldn't do it. The army said it was very open to doing it. And simply as a 
sort of matter of sense. I do not understand why military bases should be named after people who attack the U.S. military. But in all those cases, Donald Trump seemed to have this idea of the military as a bunch of tough guys, indifferent to any concerns over sort of what he would call political correctness, right? So any concerns over over race or sensitivity. And the military doesn't function like that. It's a deeply integrated organization of professionals. And of course, they have to take those kinds of concerns seriously. And so the military, in that sense, has been more sensitive to political currents than Trump politician has. That's striking. It's interesting because you've had various military leaders, of course, serve within the Trump White House. These have been both those who were four-star generals like Jim Mattis, and then John Bolton, who was not in the military itself, but has a very long experience within the national security establishment. And their departure from the White House has always been quite acrimonious. In prior administrations, when someone would leave the White House, they would do so somewhat quietly. That's not how it goes in the Trump White House. And Trump's response generally, both uh, you've seen it recently in his response to Jim Mattis's comments, and also, of course, John Bolton has a new book in which in detail he lays out the ways in which, according to Mr. Bolton, that Trump misused his power within the White House uh, on the global stage. You have Trump arguing, it's not me, it's them. And there's a limit to how many times you can make that argument. And so if Trump is reelected, I'm very interested to see who he enlists to serve with him through a second term, because you have these quite battle-ready military leaders, people who are who are quite used to difficult work environments, coming into the Trump White House and then leaving in relatively short order. Okay, thank you both. In a moment, we will go back to the worst ever crisis in civil military relations. But first, a reminder that if you're not an Economist subscriber yet, you should be. To sign up at a special rate, head to economist.com slash 2020 election pod. There's a big piece arguing that Amazon is past its prime, plus analysis of the big Supreme Court decision on gay and trans rights. That link again is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. It's in the show notes for this episode. Only one general has become president since the Civil War era. Dwight Eisenhower won the White House a hero, mastermind of D-Day and the defeat of Nazi Germany. Battleship Missouri, 53,000-ton flagship of Admiral Halsey's Third Fleet, becomes the scene of an unforgettable ceremony, marking the complete and formal surrender of Japan. But it was Eisenhower's rival in Asia whose thirst for power would spark a constitutional crisis. General of the Army Douglas MacArthur, Supreme Allied Commander for the Occupation of Japan, boards the Missouri. General MacArthur commanded Allied troops in the Pacific, It is Sunday, September 2nd, 1945. For four years after defeating Japan, MacArthur ruled the country more or less unilaterally. His forces of occupation rebuilt and transformed the country, introducing parliamentary rule, land reform and trade unions. We are gathered here, representatives of the major warring powers, to conclude a solemn agreement whereby peace may be restored. The Emperor of Japan remained nominally in charge and theoretically divine, but MacArthur towered over him, quite literally, in a famous photo of the two men. Mr. Shigemitsu comes to the surrender table. 
These dramatic first pictures were made by newsreel war correspondents and Army and Navy cameramen and were specially flown back from Tokyo. The Economist at the time wrote that the general was a symbol of the American self-confidence, impatience for results and enjoyment of power which reveal themselves more conspicuously outside than inside the United States. MacArthur's supreme power in Tokyo contrasted with President Harry Truman's tentative grip on Washington. Truman squeaked through the 1948 election. Their differences went deeper. Truman was the last president without a college education. Short-sighted, he was rejected by the US Military Academy. MacArthur, or Mac, as newspapers called him, was top of the class at West Point. Then Korea, and a new call to arms. Things came to a head when North Korea attacked in June 1950. MacArthur's counterstroke, an amphibious landing at Incheon to take the Reds by surprise from the rear. A brilliant maneuver, it changed the course of the war overnight. Tanks and troops swarmed ashore in one of the great military strokes of all time. MacArthur was made commander of the United Nations forces defending the South. The amphibious assault at Incheon repelled the communists. But contrary to the assurances MacArthur had given the president, the advance north provoked Peking. Red China entered the war. Hit by Chinese armies, United Nations forces fell back over the snow to the 38th parallel. The situation stabilized, but MacArthur continued to agitate publicly for expanding the confrontation with China. He asked for nuclear weapons, but Truman was determined to limit the war. He relieved MacArthur of his post. I believe that we must try to limit the war to Korea and to prevent a third world war. Truman's cabinet colleagues agreed that it was the right thing to do to restore the chain of command, but they worried that firing a war hero would be politically disastrous. And it was. Truman's approval rating dropped to 22%, the lowest of any president ever. MacArthur returned to the US defiant. He hadn't been home in 14 years, but flew straight to Washington, where he made an emotional address to Congress. Efforts have been made to distort my position. It has been said in effect that I was a warmonger. Nothing could be further from the truth. I know war, as few other men now living know it, and nothing to me is more revolting. The Economist hailed the speech as one of the greatest. The rows of weeping congressmen were a tribute to his artistry, we wrote. When I joined the army, even before the turn of the century, it was the fulfillment of all my boyish hopes and dreams. The world has turned over many times. Since I took the oath on the plane at West Point, and the hopes and dreams have long since vanished. But I still remember the refrain of one of the most popular barrack ballads of that day, which proclaimed most proudly that old soldiers never die. They just fade away. And like the old soldier of that ballot, I now close my military career and just 
fade away. An old soldier who tried to do his duty as God gave him the light to see that duty. Goodbye. We heard God speak here today with the verdict of one congressman. But the adulation went beyond Washington. In New York, MacArthur's motorcade snaked through the largest ticker tape parade the city had ever seen. MacArthur started a speaking tour and was tipped for president, but he never put himself forward as a candidate. Instead, he hoped a divided party would turn to him as its savior. I speak with a sense of pride that all of my long life I have been a member of the Republican Party. Despite a rousing speech at the 1952 convention, his refusal to campaign openly or develop a platform counted against him, and his attacks on Truman began to get boring. Perhaps it is unnecessary here to indict the present administration for all of its tragic blunders. Truman's presidency never recovered. He didn't run again in 1952. Eisenhower became the Republican nominee, won by a landslide. But by then, civilian control of the military had been reasserted. General MacArthur, perhaps the most powerful American never to be president, finally faded away. Let us pray that peace be now restored to the world and that God will preserve it always. These proceedings are closed. Well, I fell down a bit of a 1952 rabbit hole and spent some time this week watching MacArthur's speech at a Republican convention, which goes on forever because he can't say more than three words without receiving a standing ovation. What I found most striking about it, though, John Fassman, was that at least at the beginning of the speech, he takes for granted that sort of America is in a kind of terrible moment of decline. This is 1952, when America's really at its kind of apogee in terms of military power, and also in terms of personnel. You know, that 1952 Republican field has, you know, MacArthur, who's just been running Japan for seven years. You have Eisenhower, and you have Earl Warren of Warren Court fame. So it's hard to look at that moment now and think that America was in the deep crisis um, in the way that MacArthur seemed to think it was. Anyway, why do you think it is, John, that there have been no generals who've become presidents since Ike? Well, let's start with a slightly different question, which is who would it have been? Who is the general who had a sort of similar standing to MacArthur, admired by people on both sides, famous as a military general and as a sort of a military leader? The only person who comes to mind is, is Colin Powell, uh, in the aftermath of the Gulf War, and he did not want to run for president. You'll remember in 2004, I think Wesley Clark tried to run for president, and uh, there was a tremendous amount of excitement over his candidacy, but uh, he proved somewhat erratic under the pressure. You also had John Kerry that year, who had served in the military, make a great deal of his military service because he would give his anti-Iraq war message some 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 depth to it. He wouldn't just be anti-war. He'd be anti-war with a military background. So I'm not sure that there has been a figure comparable to MacArthur because there hasn't been a war comparable to the Second World War. But it is interesting that that nobody from Vietnam, which just which transformed America, 
perhaps more than any other war since the Second World War, nobody who served in Vietnam will be president. That seems like it, it says something. I'm not entirely sure what, but it says something about how America has processed that war. In some ways, it makes sense because the share of Americans who have served in the military has declined so steeply. In, in 1980, it was 18%, and that included those who'd served in the Second World War, the Korean War, in Vietnam. And then in, in 2017, the figure was down to 7%, so less than half the rate, the share of 1980. I think that's reflected to some degree in the people who have chosen to run for office. Um, you know, another person who came to mind for me, John Fasman, was General Petraeus, David Petraeus, who did have um, quite a lot of support, I think, and was respected on both sides of the aisle. And he uh, left the CIA under Barack Obama's administration because of a personal scandal. So there's sort of idiosyncratic reasons as well that you haven't had military leaders advance uh, to the highest ranks of American politics. So no Vietnam vet will ever be president now, but we will inevitably have a president who avoided the Vietnam draft because while Donald Trump famously avoided the draft because of his bone spurs, Joe Biden also avoided the draft because he had asthma. Okay, we will get the view of somebody who did serve in the military, an Iraq veteran, now in Congress, on the politicization of the military in just a moment. How is the balance between the military and politicians shifting? To get a sense of how it works on Capitol Hill, I spoke to Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher, an Iraq war veteran. I was kind of a Middle East geek in college and an Arabic linguist. He's from Green Bay, Wisconsin. He was wearing a Packers jacket on our video call. I became a human intelligence counterintelligence officer in the Marine Corps, deployed in 2007 to Western Iraq. I commanded a team of Marines on uh, the Syrian border. I asked him how it felt to move from the institution Americans trust most to the one they trust least. What makes me optimistic about Congress over the long term is I see that new generation emerging that is willing to work across the aisle, that is willing to question the status quo, and that I think genuinely wants to put the interests of the country ahead of their own narrow parochial and political interests. Uh, I was the second youngest member when I came in in 2016, 2017. Now I think I'm barely in the top 10, which is an imperfect metric, but it tells you that there are younger members running from very diverse backgrounds, right? Uh, the Democrats smartly recruited a lot of military veterans to run in 2018. They turned a lot of districts that we should have won, quite frankly. We're trying to do something similar now, but my hope is it's that kind of generation of 9-11 of veterans, for lack of a better term, that will change the culture in Congress. And we do work together. On the Armed Services Committee, which I think is the exception that proves the rule that I serve on, Every time I offer an amendment, almost without exception, I have a Democratic co-sponsor. I think China is a, a unifying issue in terms of national security and foreign policy. I think there's a real opportunity to kind of rebuild a bipartisan consensus going forward. And also, I think there are a lot of issues where I'm at odds with my own party. I think a lot of us younger Republicans are willing to talk about climate change and things that are occasionally considered verboten by our older colleagues. So I don't know. It's, it's all changing. As you say, there's a certain amount of consensus now in Congress and you know, within the US policy community, for want of a better word, broadly about 
the fact that the past China policy failed and something more confrontational is in order. There's less consensus about the state of civil-military relations. Admiral Mike Mullen, former chair of the Joint Chiefs, have said that too many policy choices have become militarised, too many military missions have become politicised. There have been various flashpoints in civil-military relations during the Trump presidency, but we had a big one a couple of weeks ago, just close to the White House. How concerned are you? I'm very concerned, uh, perhaps for some different or additional reasons than your, your question presupposes. You know, I do think there's maybe a tendency on our side of the aisle, but, but both sides to use the image of military leaders with stars on their shoulders as a way of getting political support or support for a preferred policy. I think that's dangerous, uh, but that's also a bipartisan thing. I mean, you can go back to both conventions in 2016 and find high-profile former four-star commanders speaking at political conventions. I think that sets a bad precedent. I think uh, the George Marshall uh, approach is the better approach, where once you've kind of hung up your stars, you should avoid politics as much as humanly possible. If you're asked to serve your president, that's your right. And if you get to a point where you disagree with the policy decision, you can obviously resign that post, as General Mattis did. I do, I do get worried, though, when people try and weaponize military leaders and military clout in order to make fundamentally political points, because I think it undermines civilian control of the military. And also, I think it reduces the likelihood that any future president will be able to have frank and honest discussions behind closed doors about very difficult issues and very deadly issues with military commanders because they're always worried that this person is going to go write a memoir savaging me or this person is going to become a political pawn used by the other side. And so maybe all of this, and I'm sorry to go on, but I never really thought about this before. So now I'm thinking out loud, which is dangerous. You know, I, I, we've we've come a long way since the days of Vietnam. You know, uh, military members aren't getting spit on. Almost everybody thanks veterans for their service. But that can't mean that we somehow put every person who wears a uniform on a pedestal and suggest that their opinions are unassailable simply because they're in the military. You mentioned James Mattis, General Mattis. I know he's somebody you admire because you've quoted him a fair bit in the past. When he left the administration, he was he was quiet for a while. I'm sure he had disagreements with the president while he was there, but he didn't bring them into the public um, until recently after the Lafayette Square incident where he said, Donald Trump's the first president in my lifetime who doesn't try to unite the American people, doesn't even pretend to try. What did you make of that statement? Well, certainly, uh, you know, it's General Mattis's right to speak out when he feels he must. And obviously, he was candid about the reasons uh, that he left the administration in the first place. And I think you can disagree with the substance of his argument, as I actually do in this case, without suggesting that somehow he's a traitor or that his military experience was meaningless, because it wasn't. I served under Mattis, and he is a revered Marine commander, and I continue to think he's a patriot. However, in this case, I do disagree because certainly the president has the legal authority to use the National Guard uh, in D.C., which he did in this case, uh, which my Democratic governor in Wisconsin uh, did here in my home state. And if necessary, 
draw upon the Insurrection Act to deploy active duty troops. I don't think it was necessary at the time, and luckily we didn't have to do that. But certainly we have recent precedent for presidents of both parties doing exactly that. And so the president, I don't think, overstepped his constitutional uh, guardrails in that sense. So, Charlotte, I don't know about you, but I felt a little bit more hopeful both about the future direction of the Republican Party after speaking to congressmen and also about the potential for bipartisanship on on some subjects, at least. Yeah, his claims of bipartisanship and the way that veterans are likely to work together, it can sound a little bit like hot air, but there is actually substance to it. There's evidence that veterans, even when they come from very deep red or from deep blue districts, are more likely to co-sponsor bipartisan legislation and vote in a bipartisan way than are their non-veteran counterparts. And another thing that he said that I thought was interesting and will be interesting to see how it is sustained through the next election is that he pointed to Democrats' really successful strategy in 2018 of advancing candidates to challenge Republicans in tight races. You had veterans running as Democrats to help tap into this idea of restoring a sense of service and dignity to Congress. The public sees Congress as the least trustworthy among American institutions and the military as the most trusted, according to Gallup. And so Democrats were able to build on that in um, in purple districts to swing those seats from Republicans to Democrats. Yeah, you saw that in 2018 with candidates like Jared Golden, who ran in Maine 2nd District and ousted an incumbent Republican. You see it now. Amy McGrath, who is who is running for Mitch McConnell's seat, makes a great deal of her service as a fighter pilot. You have Claire Russo, who is a Democratic vet running in Virginia's 5th District, which looked like a long shot until Bob Good won the drive through convention this year. And so Democrats seem to have figured out how to sort of tap in and expand the idea of service that runs through military service into something broader. Yes, John, my single favorite candidate CV from the 2018 cycle on the Democratic side was Abigail Spanberger, who stood for and won Virginia's 7th district as a former CIA field officer. It just seems so interesting to me. You know, most candidates like to brag to some extent about what they did before they were elected, but presumably she couldn't tell you because she'd have to kill you if she did. Um Charlotte, how important do you think the tension between Donald Trump and senior ranks of the military is going to be between now and November? I think it's a losing game to predict exactly how the Trump news cycle will evolve. But I do think that this fundamental problem which Trump has with centrist moderate voters, that is that he's a wild card, that he's advancing his personal interests rather than American interests in in his dealings with foreign leaders. Um, All of that can be quite damaging for him. Biden, in contrast, he wants to boost the defense budget. Um, Trump did increase the defense budget in his first first years in office. Um, In contrast to Trump, he opposed Trump's troop withdrawal from Syria. That withdrawal from Kurdish allies along the Syrian border was why General Mattis resigned. And, and, and Biden, I think generally, he's much more of a supporter of longstanding partnerships that America has had with NATO versus Trump and with, with, with other allies. Uh, But I think really the degree to which Biden can make this a referendum on Trump rather than a decision about Trump versus Biden, that that will be more helpful 
to Joe Biden. He really would want to keep all the attention on Trump and the way that he clashes with respected military leaders, the way that he upends long-held norms of the presidency. All that will play better to Biden, I think, than trying to deal with Joe Biden himself head-on as Trump's replacement. Yeah, there's this debate about the degree to which Joe Biden's candidacy is a sort of restoration candidacy, bringing back the status quo before Donald Trump, and the degree to which it's something different. And I think this area, civil military relations, is clearly one where he's a restoration candidate. He'd like to return to the kind of norms that Donald Trump has trampled all over. Um, We managed to get through the whole podcast without mentioning Tom Cotton's op-ed, which I think is some kind of achievement. Let's leave it there. Before you go, I have a quiz for you. I mentioned The Economist's report on General MacArthur's farewell address to Congress. The paper called him America's greatest living orator, with one exception. Who was that one exception? Sorry, this is in 1952. In 1952? The greatest living orator, other than MacArthur. This was before Martin Luther King was widely known. Is this a trick question? Is it not a politician? It's not a trick question, Charlotte. Would I do that to you? It's somebody we've (laughs) mentioned already in the podcast. I'm thinking. The two we mentioned were Truman or Eisenhower, but I don't know. Yeah, it can't have been Truman who, who, right? Eisenhower. It must have been Eisenhower. Was it Eisenhower? (laughs) It must have been Eisenhower. I like Ike. Yes. You like Ike. I have some I like Ike stamps up on the wall in my office. It was indeed Eisenhower, a point for each of you. The next question is so difficult that I will bet my house on you not getting it right. Um, And it's going to be pretty tough for people playing along at home. Okay, so that was the lead story in the US section of the paper on the 28th of April, 1951. 28th of April, auspicious day, (laughs) Charlotte Howard's birthday, my birthday. The last story in that edition was about fruit. A shortage of dollars meant that Sweden had not been able to enjoy Texas grapefruit since 1946, the paper reported. But an enterprising Texan worked out a barter agreement with the Swedes. Surplus grapefruit would be traded for what pre-packaged domestic items? Swedish pre-packaged? It has to be some kind of biscuit, some kind of cookie? I don't know. Herring? How many square feet is your house, by the way? <laughs> Not enough. Not enough to house the whole Phasma clan in the degree to which you've become accustomed. The Texans were going to swap their grapefruit for Swedish prefabricated houses. Presumably, the exchange rate was quite a lot of grapefruits per house. I would think so. Um, but that was the deal. You can tell my quarantine, that my answer immediately goes to cookies. That's sort of what's on my brain these days. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thanks, John. Thank you. That's all from us. If you like the podcast, please leave a rating and a review on your podcast app. While you're there, have a listen to The Economist Asks podcast with the investor Melody Hobson. You can also let us know what you think via email. Radio at economist.com is the address. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.